Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, It's All About Love. It's based upon the lectionary readings for May 9th, 2021, the sixth Sunday of Easter. When my children were younger, I would use our drive home from church each week to ask what, if anything, they had gleaned from Sunday worship. They'd rattle off a favorite hymn, or ask about a baffling scripture reading, or tell me about the gentleman who snored his way through the service in a nearby pew. If I asked them what the sermon was about, however, they'd give me the same answer every time. Love. The sermon was about love. If I asked them to elaborate, they'd shrug. The sermon was about love. What else was there to say? To this day, I'm not sure if they gave me that answer because they knew it would get me off their backs or because they recognized that the gospel in its entirety is about love. I hope it's the latter because the latter is the truth. Jesus makes this abundantly clear when he gives his disciples a commandment in our gospel reading for the sixth Sunday of Easter, love one another as I have loved you. On the face of it, this is a weird commandment. Can we be ordered to love? Does love obey decrees? Most of us would say no. Shaped as we are by Hollywood films and romance novels, we usually think of love as spontaneous and free-flowing. We fall in love. Love is blind. It happens at first sight. It breaks our hearts and its course never runs smooth. Even if we put cultural cliches aside, we know that authentic love can't be manipulated, simulated, or rushed. Those of us who have kids understand full well that commanding them to love each other never works. The most we can do is insist that our children behave as if they love. Share your toys. Say sorry. Don't hit. Use kind words. But these actions, often performed with gritted teeth and rolling eyes, aren't the same as what Jesus is talking about in John's Gospel. He doesn't give his disciples, or us, the easy out of doing nice things with clenched, resentful hearts nor would I want him to. Nothing feels as hollow as a loving act performed lovelessly. Moreover, I doubt that the people who flocked to Jesus would have done so if they sensed that his compassion was brittle or forced. No, when Jesus says, love as I have loved you, he means it, as in, for real, as in the whole bona fide package, authentic feeling, honest engagement, generous action. Doesn't it sound as if he's asking for the impossible? Imagine what would happen to us if we took this commandment seriously. How would we have to change? What could Christendom look like if we obeyed orders and cultivated an impossible love? I ask these questions with trepidation because I don't know how to answer them even for myself. Many of us, after this long, brutal year of pandemic, are exhausted. We've seen and experienced so much loss. We've known the helplessness of empathizing in situations both local and global, where we are unable to intervene. We've been denied many of our go-to ways of expressing love, inviting people into our homes, giving each other hugs, worshiping together in person. In the face of so much pain, isolation, and death, what can love do? It's easy to get lost in this question, or worse, give up on the question altogether, and retreat into numbness, anger, and apathy. But if, as my kids intuited from Sunday sermons years ago, the way of Jesus is all about love, then we need to find ways to press in. At the very least, we need to keep asking questions and pursuing answers. 
How shall we love as Jesus loved? How shall we sustain such depths of compassion and remain healthy? Do we have it in us to experience a hunger for justice so fierce and so urgent that we'll rearrange our lives in order to pursue it? Do we want to? Much of the time, I'll be honest, I don't. I want to be safe. I want to keep my circle small and manageable. I want to choose the people I love based on my own affinities and preferences, not on Jesus' all-inclusive commandment. Charitable actions are easy, but cultivating my heart, preparing and pruning it to love, becoming vulnerable in authentic ways to the world's pain, those things are hard, hard and costly. So what can I do? Where must I begin? Jesus offers a single, straightforward answer. Abide in my love. Following on the heels of last week's gospel, Jesus extends the metaphor of the vine and branches and calls us once again to abide, to rest, to cling, to make ourselves at home, not simply in him, but in his love. My problem is that I often treat Jesus as a role model and then despair when I can't live up to his high standards. But abiding in something is not the same as emulating it. In the vine and branches metaphor, Jesus' love is not our example, it's our source. It's where our love originates and deepens, where it replenishes itself. In other words, if we don't abide, we can't love. Jesus' commandment to us is not that we wear ourselves out, trying to conjure love from our own easily depleted resources. Rather, it's that we abide in the holy place where human love becomes possible. We make our home in Jesus' love, the most abundant and inexhaustible love in existence. As is so often the case in our lives as Christians, Jesus' commandment leads us straight to paradox. We are called to action via rest, called to become love as we abide in love. The commandment, or better yet, the invitation, is to drink our fill of the source, which is Christ, spill over to bless the world, and then return to the source for a fresh infilling. This is our movement, our rhythm, our dance, over and over again. This is where we begin and end and begin again. Love one another as I have loved you. Abide in my love. These are finally not two separate actions. They are one and the same. One impossible commandment to save the world. It's all about love. For books this week, Dan reviews Uncanny Valley, a memoir by Anna Wiener. Anna Wiener was 25 when she left her poorly paying job in the New York publishing industry that always felt on the brink of collapse and moved to San Francisco where she took a job at an ebook startup for $20 an hour and no benefits. She was older than the company founders. She later moved to a data analytics company and then to a startup that hosted software development. This best-selling memoir about her four-year experience was named a top 10 book by numerous outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, the LA Times, Elle, and Amazon. Not bad for your first book. I did my dissertation on a sociologist of technology in 1985 and lived at ground zero of Silicon Valley for 25 years in Palo Alto and concur with the effusive praise. I actually find it hard to imagine a person so young being so perceptive about her experiences and then having the remarkable skill to write about it with insight and sardonic humor. Wiener is a humanities person who calls herself affectedly analog, and her three jobs were in the non-technical end of these startups, 
e.g. customer support, which is to say that she was at the bottom of the technocratic meritocracy. Strike one. As a woman, she experienced a misogynist bro culture that is endemic in Silicon Valley. Strike two. Then, as a perceptive critic, she calls out the many incantations of the subculture's techno-optimism, wealth creation, inflated self-importance, and especially its insider jargon. Unicorn, ecosystem, disruption, work fast, break things, ask forgiveness, not permission, pitch deck, pivoting, first mover advantage, reducing friction, growth hack, and my favorite, down for the cause. Strike three. Eventually, Wiener started to realize we were swimming in the Kool-Aid. In fact, she observed, an entire culture had been seduced. I understood my blind faith in ambitious, aggressive, arrogant young men from America's soft suburbs as a personal pathology, but it wasn't personal at all. It had become a global affliction. And so she left San Francisco and returned to Brooklyn. For more on this important subject, see my two essays on Tectopia, Part 1 and Part 2, which include my reviews of a dozen books on our technological society. And finally, a funny footnote to Wiener's book title, which, as the British say, might be too clever by half. I didn't understand it until after reading the book, but the title Uncanny Valley is a clever double entendre by Wiener that I suspect the vast majority of readers will miss. I could only quote from the Wikipedia article on Uncanny Valley. In aesthetics, the Uncanny Valley is a hypothesized relationship between the degree of an object's resemblance to a human being and the emotional response to such an object. The concept suggests that humanoid objects, which imperfectly resemble actual human beings, provoke uncanny or strangely familiar feelings of eeriness and revulsion in observers. Valley denotes a dip in the human observer's affinity for the replica, a relation that otherwise increases with the replica's human likeness. Examples can be found in robotics, 3D computer animations, and lifelike dolls. With the increasing prevalence of virtual reality, augmented reality, and photorealistic computer animation, the valley has been cited in reaction to the verisimilitude of the creation as it approaches indistinguishability from reality. The uncanny valley hypothesis predicts that an entity appearing almost human will risk eliciting cold, eerie feelings in viewers. For films this week, Dan reviews My Octopus Teacher. This Netflix original documentary was a surprise hit of 2020, enjoying all sorts of accolades like top 10 best movies by various outlets. When the naturalist and filmmaker Craig Foster experienced a bad case of burnout, he returned to his boyhood home and childhood memories on the beaches of the tip of South Africa near Cape Town. As a form of therapy, he started freediving, no wetsuit or supplemental oxygen, in the kelp forests of the 48-degree water. The movie recounts how, on one of these dives, Foster discovered a wild common octopus, there are 300 species, and started returning to its den and plotting its movements every day for almost a year. That led to nothing short of a relationship between man and animal as a stunning photography shows. Foster narrates his own story and tries to describe how the relationship changed his life and made him appreciate how we are all connected to nature and how fragile all life is. In a sort of subplot that feels tacked on at the end, this in turn led him to reconnect with his son by passing on to him the joy of this connection with the sea. I won't spoil the story, but will just say that this is a combination love story and tearjerker. And lastly, for poetry for the sixth week of Easter, George Herbert's Love 3. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin, 
but quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 9th, 2021. I'm Debbie Thomas.